0: Precious Word of God, our sure foundation in the sea of life, as the winds blow and the waves toss, we have an anchor for our souls in Holy Scripture. Let us turn to Romans chapter 5. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a foundation for our faith that we may rely upon the written record of your Word. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Before we enter the fifth chapter, let's take a few minutes, and the few minutes might turn into more minutes, but let's try to look at the last two verses, or the last three verses of the fourth chapter. Let's start with the last verse. And then we'll go with verses 23 and 24. Verse 25 tells us, Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. When the Bible uses those plural pronouns like our, it's used twice in this 25th verse. Remember that Paul is addressing elect believers in the city of Rome who have formed a church called the Church of Rome that is very... Different from the Church of Rome that exists today. The expressions like this that you encounter often in the Bible are not addressed to all mankind. Right. They are addressed to the audience to which the epistle was written. Amen. And it's important to remember that. When you get over into Second Peter chapter three and verse nine, it says, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but is long suffering to usward then you should go back to the first verse of that epistle and find out who in the world was the Apostle Peter addressing. And he'll tell you that he was addressing the elect of God who had obtained like precious faith with Peter and the other apostles. And here we have a statement made who was delivered for our offenses. If the Lord Jesus Christ was delivered up for all the offenses of all men, then no one can be sent to hell for sins Because all those sins would have been applied to the Lord Jesus Christ and He was delivered up for them. But that isn't the case. The case is that the Lord Jesus Christ bore all the sins of His people and every single one of them will never be charged with their sins. But instead, as my brother just prayed, will have the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ on their account by His work. Who was delivered for our offenses. Faith identifies us as God's elect sheep for whom Jesus died. And that is in verses 23 and 24. Before I refer to those verses, let's look at these words here in 25. Who was delivered? God delivered up His only begotten Son for us. The Jews delivered Him up to the Romans. Pilate the governor who could have saved him, delivered him up to his soldiers and a centurion for crucifixion. I want you to know that this act was by the determinant counsel of God. Please turn to Acts chapter two. While you hold your place at Romans five, let's look at a couple of references about God delivering up his son, Jesus Christ, for you and for me. Untold grace. Unbelievable mercy. Incredible and infinite love that the Holy God of Heaven would deliver up His only begotten Son that always pleased Him for us His enemies who always displeased Him. Acts chapter 2. This is how men preach when they're full of the Holy Ghost. Peter didn't preach like this 24 hours earlier. 24 hours earlier, he was an effeminate... Man, a little maid testified against him, and he denied his Lord Jesus Christ three times. Though God had warned him through Jesus Christ that he was going to do it. And he had said he would never do it, just hours earlier, yet he did do it. But Jesus told them, wait for me in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. And when the power from on high came, this is how Peter preached. Now, he's got a crowd around him in the city of Jerusalem. And I'm not going to preach his whole message, but they accuse him of being drunk for the whole company of apostles are speaking in other languages. But this is what he said, verse 22, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. How frightened does that sound? I want you to love the power of the Holy Ghost in these apostles. They turned the world upside down according to their enemies. They turned the world upside down. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by Him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that He should be holden of it. Amen. Our Savior could not be held by death. We love to sing the song, Up from the grave He arose. In vain vain they sealed the dead. Because our Lord Jesus Christ couldn't be contained in that tomb. And because He couldn't be contained, neither shall we be contained. He is the firstfruits of them that sleep in the grave. But I want that 23rd verse. Him being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You Jews, ye men of Israel, you are guilty for crucifying the Lord of glory that God approved by many signs, wonders, and miracles among you. It was obvious He was the Son of God. And with wicked hands, you crucified Him. But I want it to be known that it was according to the determinant counsel and foreknowledge of God. God knew the fore, God had foreknowledge of certain things that would take place. Therefore, His determinant counsel had determined to use Romans instead of Jews. How would the Lord Jesus Christ have died if He had died at the hands of the Jews? Stoned to death. How many bones would have been broken? Many. Could a bone be broken in him? No. Did he have to hang on a tree? Yes. That's the foreknowledge of God, knowing how the details would work out by having the Jews transfer him to the Romans. But it was all by the determinate counsel of God that he was delivered up. No one took the Lord Jesus Christ. Come on. My Savior isn't taken. He isn't arrested in a garden. Not when they say to Him, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am He. And they all fall backward to the ground. That is our Savior. We love our Savior. That was the power of His voice. Simon Peter drew a sword. He was trying to be brave. And he smote off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Jesus said, put your sword up. Don't you know that right now I could call... Twelve legions of angels. And they would deliver me. Amen. Twelve legions of angels. One did a good enough job to pour Sennacherib and his army of 185,000 little wimpy boys. One angel, 185,000. I could call twelve legions of angels. It was determined by, by the counsel of God that the Lord Jesus Christ was delivered up and by the foreknowledge of God how all the events would take place. When they came and found the Lord Jesus Christ already dead, it was the practice of Roman crucifiers to take the legs and break them. Gentle fellows, I wonder if they'd ever read any of the United Nations rules on proper warfare. You know, had they ever read the Geneva Convention, that when a man is hanging on a cross and dying of crucifixion, that breaking his legs isn't very nice. But they broke his legs. He could no longer support himself. They would fall upon the weight and die of suffocation and the, the, the death would be hastened on. They come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's dead already. So they pierce him in his side and out came blood and water. But not a bone of him was broken. And John would write in John chapter 19, I bear witness with my own eyes exactly how it turned out. The Scriptures were fulfilled perfectly Amen. by the determinate counsel of God. Jesus was delivered, though they were guilty for it. Look at chapter four. Acts chapter four. We believe that there was a counsel of God in eternity, and that the things that we observe in time are the working out of his counsel in eternity. James preached that to the council at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 and verse 18, when after explaining the prophecy of Amos in Amos chapter eight, that the building again of the tabernacle of David was the conversion of Gentiles, he said, known unto God are all His works from the foundation of the world. My Jewish brethren, God's had this in His plan from the beginning. Who are we to fight against it? Listen to what Paul has described about the conversion of Gentiles. Listen to what Peter has described about the conversion of Cornelius' household. We're not going to fight against this. This is of God. This is the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. But back to Acts chapter 4. We believe that there was a council in eternity that arranged all these events. In Acts chapter 4, they're preaching against a, to a council of the Jews. No, in verse 27, they're praying when they got back to their own company. Up to verse 22, they were defending themselves against the rulership of the Jews that was trying to keep them from preaching. But in verse 27, as they prayed... They said, for of a truth, as they quoted from Psalm 2 in verses 25 and 26, they said in verse 27 in their prayer, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Everything that happened to the Lord Jesus Christ was according to the eternal counsel of God that had determined every aspect of that event. We trust in that sovereignty of God because we know that Jesus Christ was foreordained before the world began to be our Savior. And when He was foreordained before the world began, we were foreordained in Him because we were chosen in Him before the world began, all by an eternal counsel. To our limited view of things, we are such creatures of time. The only way we can put things in perspective is a timeline of a progress of events. We we live in the present far more than the past or the future. We're creatures of time, but God is not. He had a counsel before time that determined what we see in time, but God determined every aspect of it. And these people, not only was it preached on the day of Pentecost in chapter two, they used it in their prayers in Acts chapter four, as they submitted themselves to the God that does everything according to his eternal counsel. Doesn't it say in Ephesians chapter one and verse eleven, Who doeth according to his will? We're gonna get no don't don't you go quote in Daniel four thirty five when you mean Ephesians chapter one and verse eleven. That's confusion. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. Amen. Amen. That's our salvation right there. Thank you, Lord, for that salvation. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. We are wanting to explain and open up Romans 4.25 that says that the Lord Jesus Christ was delivered for our offenses and He was raised again for our justification. In Romans 8.32, the Apostle will write, and we will study these in a few weeks, "...he that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things?" That's the doctrine of salvation. God gave His Son for us, and everything else was purchased by that Son. Everything else is less than the Son. To give you eternal life is less than His Son. To give you everlasting righteousness is less than His Son. Understand that. Order of things. So Paul could reason, He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Everything else is just going to be swept in with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if God gave His Son, what in the world would He withhold? If He wouldn't withhold His Son, why would He withhold anything that you need? That's right. And we're going to see that in Romans chapter 5. After all, it is the verses that come after 4.25. We're going to see that there are lots of blessings now in Christ Jesus because He gave His Son for us. Back to Romans chapter 4. He was delivered for our offenses. Who delivered him up? Judas? Hello? Judas was only doing what God had determined Judas would do before the foundation of the world. What did Jesus say about Judas? It would have been better for that man if he hadn't been born. He was delivered for our offenses. Your sins and my sins drove the nails, powered the scourge, placed the thorns in His head, rammed a spear into His side, and tore His body apart joint by joint as He hung on the cross for our sins. He was delivered for our offenses because it pleased the Lord God Almighty to bruise Him. For you and me. Unbelievable love. Amen. Try to bruise one of my sons. I had two events this past week with two of my five, my seven or twenty or whatever I have sons. Sorry. Chris and Eric, forgive me. I had two events with two of those sons. I didn't handle them very well. I didn't handle those events very well. God's forgiven me, so I'm not going to tell you about it except to say that. Two of my sons were picked down a little bit, and it messed me up. Oh, they can handle themselves. They can handle me, too. But I want you to think about the God of heaven. He delivered up his own son. And it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Unbelievable love. And it's shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us, 5-5. Five, five. We're coming to that verse. Just hold on. We want 25. I don't want to cheat you out of Romans 4 as we go into 5. He was delivered for our offenses, and God was the one that delivered up His own Son. And the Lord Jesus Christ knew it His entire life. The Lord Jesus Christ knew that His Father was going to deliver Him up to death. It was not some surprise that took Him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was praying for mercy before the crowd ever got there in that garden. He was saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. He had set His face to go to Jerusalem long before. He was ready to do the Father's will, even to go to the cross for us. And we celebrate Him in just a few hours. The Lord's Supper is not a time of grieving. He's not grieving. He's not in pain. He's in eternal... Pleasure. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. If you're truly discerning the Lord Jesus Christ, when we come to the Lord's table, you should have a great measure of joy. Because He is in heaven having conquered death. Amen. He's not dying. He's not dead. He's risen. And He says, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of hell and of death as he swings them on his finger, meaning all the authority to deliver us from the grave. He has the authority of hell and of death. God delivered him up for us, and he was raised again for our justification. Here is legal justification and the forgiveness of sins in verse 25. This is the legal transaction that took place at the cross of Calvary and on resurrection morning when the Lord Jesus Christ showed that he was the Savior of his people. And defeated sin, death, the devil, and hell, and rose from the dead. If Jesus Christ be not risen, and you heard it last Sunday evening from 1 Corinthians 15, then ye are yet in your sins. He was delivered up to die for our sins, but were our sins too much for Him? If Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, our sins were too much for Him. They kept Him in the grave, but they didn't keep Him in the grave did they? He rose from the dead. Amen. Therefore, we can preach like First Corinthians 15, because Christ is risen, our sins have been paid for, and we shall rise as well, because our sins and the curse of death has been taken away. Right. Who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Now back to 23 and 24. Now it was not written for His sake alone. Romans 5.23 is referring to Genesis 15.6 and Genesis chapter 17, because Genesis 17 is the event brought in in the last six verses before this verse. Genesis 15.6 is the event in the first half of the chapter. The first event is Genesis 15.6. God told Abram, come outside, count the stars for me. How do I do that? so shall thy seed be. Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him for righteousness. That was an evidence that he was a righteous man and that God counted him righteous. Chapter 17. I have made thee a father of many nations. This is what Abraham believed and is under discussion right here. It's a similar event. Abraham and Paul ties them together in the last few words of verse 18 by saying, That it was in agreement with, so shall thy seed be, which is from 15. So there were multiple acts of faith in Abraham's life that were evidence that he was a justified man. God counted him, esteemed him, regarded him, considered him a righteous man by the evidence of the faith that he showed. Verse 23, now it, Genesis 15 or Genesis 17, was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. We don't have Genesis fifteen six just for us to know about Abraham being considered and counted a righteous man in the sight of God. Verse 23, <coughs> It was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. Verse 24, But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Genesis 15, 6, for us to read about a formal, official declaration about Abraham being a righteous man was not for us just to know about him. It was also so that we could know about us. Right. And really, isn't that a little more important to you than Abraham? I mean, you're glad Abraham's in heaven, but isn't, aren't you a little more concerned about yourself? And so Genesis 15:6 and Genesis 17 were written for you and me so that we would have a formal, official declaration that faith is the evidence of a righteous man. Amen. That faith is counted as a sign that we are righteous. Right. Faith didn't move Abraham from the column of the condemned to the column of the righteous. He'd already been moved. He'd been moved in the eternal counsel of God. He was moved at the cross of Calvary, which God looked forward to by faith. There's so much, but that's in the five phases of salvation, I'm not going to repeat them. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on Him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. God does not call us to go outside, count the stars, and believe the promise, so shall thy seed be. God calls on us to look in His Word and read the written record of His Son Jesus Christ, And when we believe that written record contrary to the rest of the world that denies Him, it is counted to us as an evidence of our righteousness. You can know that Jesus Christ died for you by believing the record that God has given of His Son. Look at 1 John chapter 5 with me. 1 John chapter 5. I'm sorry to read a number of verses here, but I hope you'll understand. First John 5, and I'm going to start at the first verse. And I've got to read a number of these verses. God has not called us to count stars and believe that we're going to be the Father of many nations. He's called on us to believe the record and testimony and witness that He has given of His Son, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you believe everything the Bible records about Jesus of Nazareth? This is the evidence of eternal life. First John 5, 1, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ Is born of God. That does not say whosoever believeth shall be born of God. That tells you (coughs) that anyone who believes that Jesus Christ is, that Jesus is the Christ is already born of God. That is born is a passive voice, perfect tense, verb construction, meaning the birth was perfected before the believing. If you don't believe that, then go through the epistle of 1 John and find out where it says, Whosoever loveth his brother is born of God. Now does that mean we need to love our brother in order to be born of God? I trow not. Because when I read 1 John it says, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. I want you to learn these little places in 1 John. You don't need a grammar book. You need 1 John chapters 3 and 4 to understand 5.1. 1 John 4.15. Some of you appreciated that a couple of months ago. 1 John 4.15. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in Him and He in God. What takes place first? A natural man confessing Jesus Christ and then God taking up dwelling in Him? or God dwelling in a man that results in him confessing the Lord Jesus Christ. Read it for yourselves. It's there. I can't comment on every verse. First John 5, 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. If our faith overcomes the world, and whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, then what does that say about our faith? It is born of God. Surely you are able to connect that. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Verse 5, Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. This is he, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is he that came by water and blood. At his baptism, he was identified by a voice from heaven as the Son of God. How did he come by blood? At his crucifixion, there were three hours of darkness. This is He that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. The Spirit of God was given to bear witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He bore witness of Him through His entire ministry by giving Him the power to do miracles, and He would turn the hearts of men, open their hearts like the heart of Lydia, to believe the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came with threefold witness. Now, does the Bible teach us that we need two or three witnesses for every word to be established? Water, blood, spirit. At His baptism, God from heaven thundered down and revealed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. The Spirit of God descended in the form of a dove upon His head. John had been told, Whomever you see the Spirit of God descending upon, He is the Son of God. This is the record that God gave of His Son. First 7, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. We have the, the water of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, His death, and we have the Spirit that testifies of Jesus. The reason we have the ordinance of baptism is so that we reenact, we reenact a testimony of water Of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He did for us. It is still a witness in the earth. Why do we have the Lord's Supper? It is a perpetual memorial for Him who died for us. It is a witness. There were three witnesses in the life of Jesus. There are three witnesses in the life of the church. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the Spirit of God through the preaching of His Word. And these three agree in one. What one thing do they agree in? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Verse 9, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which He hath testified of His Son. I hope you're following. I can't explain these phrase by phrase. These are things in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ that we reenact by, symbolically in our services even today. We will reenact His blood being shed for us and the proof that He was the Son of God. The centurion himself was able to figure it out. Can we figure it out? Behold, surely this man was the Son of God. Verse 10, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. Oh, it says a lot right there. Whosoever confesseth that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. These things, what I just read to you, I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God so that you might know that you have eternal life. Because you believe the witness that God has given of His Son. Do you understand that the vast majority of our race does not believe the record that God has given of His Son? And if you love God, you're going to keep His commandments. So that tightens this passage down a whole lot further. How many are there that keep the commandments of God? Very, very few. This is the record, and this is how we can know that we are the children of God. Back to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Do you believe like Paul did? Paul said, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. 2 Timothy 1.12. You, you believe that? 1 Peter 4.19 would say that we're able to commit our souls as unto a faithful Creator. In John chapter 11, Jesus would say, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in Me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth in Me shall never die. Believest thou this? Do you believe that? We don't go outside and look at stars. We go into John chapter 11 and hear those words, and we hear Jesus say to us, Believest thou this? And we say, yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Son of God. Amen. Are we like Peter? In John chapter 6, when Jesus kept saying, No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. When Jesus kept saying, Except ye eat my flesh and drink my blood, ye have no life in you. Jesus knew exactly what those kind of words were going to do to His audience. They were, those words were going to make them think of cannibalism and that He was crazy and that they would leave Him. And they did leave Him. They went away. The disciples came and said, Don't you know that's a hard saying? Of course I did. Why do you think I've told you twice? No man can come unto Me except the Father which hath sent Me draw him. And they walked away. Verse 66 of John 6 says this. Just listen. From that time many of His disciples went back and walked no more with Him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? And whatever I said derogatory about Peter, let's make up for it right now. Then Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus would say in another place, Matthew 16, Simon Peter, flesh and blood, hath not revealed that unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. To be able to believe, understand, and profess such things, and to mean them sincerely is a gift from God. God dwelleth in that man, and that man in God, because without the power of the Holy Spirit bearing witness on the inside... You would not be able to say such things. The preparation of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Romans chapter 4 verse 24. But for us also, Genesis 15 6 was written for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Do you believe that God the Father raised up the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead? When the Bible says in Romans chapter 10 that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Well, what phase of salvation comes after such a confession? Is it election? Do we believe in our heart that God hath raised Him from the dead and confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus in order to get elected? No. Do we do it in order for Christ to die on the cross for us? No. Do we do it in order to be born again? No. Do we do it in order to be saved from falsely trying to secure our own righteousness by the works of the law, which is the context of Romans 10? Yes. Will we be saved in a day that is yet to come that Paul said he wasn't saved with yet? Yes. So there are two phases of salvation dependent upon the evidence of us understanding the doctrine of truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that plain enough? It, it It has to be. We have to move on. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for putting that witness in us. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10:13. What salvation is under consideration that follows you calling upon us now? I know I've said that's enough, but I'm going to give you, just remind you. We're going to get to Romans 10, and we're going to take those verses one by one. But is there a salvation that Paul didn't have yet? Did Paul say, Now is our salvation nearer than when we believed? See, there was still a salvation out in the future. In Romans chapter 8, does it say that we're still waiting for the adoption to wit? Uh, redemption of our body. The redemption of our body? How can you know that you're going to have your body redeemed? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Because believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is the evidence. It's the proof that Jesus Christ dwelleth in you. God dwells in you. And you dwell in God and you're born again. And if those things are true, you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Romans chapter 5, let's just read it. Therefore, being justified by faith. Therefore, having this matter settled. Therefore, having Romans chapter 3 and 4 under our belts. Therefore, being sure that God has saved us by His free grace in Christ Jesus our Lord, according to 3.24. And by delivering Him up for our sins in 4.25. Therefore, being justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Therefore, Paul draws a conclusion from his defense of justification by the evidence of faith against the works of the law of Moses. He would already proven that man is condemned, chapters 1 through 3. He had proven the nature of free justification by grace, 3, 21 through 26. And he had excluded works from being included at all, in the remainder of the verses leading up to this verse. Once a doctrine is established as truth, it's time to proceed to the benefits and the blessings. And our brother Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has five benefits and blessings for us in these five verses. Five. Let me give them to you before we go to break. Here are the five. First, therefore being justified by faith, and this all flows from our justification... He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not also with Him freely give us all things? Therefore, being justified by faith, number one, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The first blessing and the first benefit, we have peace with God. Not only is God at peace with us, because Jesus paid for our sins as our mediator, but we have peace toward God knowing that our account has been settled because some people, some men with beautiful feet have come and preached the, the gospel of peace. And we are supposed to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And the Lord Jesus Christ is called the Prince of Peace. Oh. Is He the King of Salem? What does King of Salem mean? King of peace. And the chastisement of our peace was upon Him. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, and hath given unto us the ministry and the word of reconciliation. First blessing. God's at peace with us. And we can be at peace with God in our hearts if we believe the gospel of peace. That is one huge blessing. To be justified means there's no more enmity or war between God and us. We are no longer the enemies of God. Hold on, don't say sons yet. We're the friends of God. Because there's peace. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, in verse two. By whom also, notice we're listing things. There's more than verse 1. By whom also we have access by faith. Our faith in believing the gospel brings us into another dimension of blessing, into this grace wherein we stand. The grace of knowing that we are the sons of God and can have fellowship with God now while living on earth. Did you read that in First John chapter 1? Why did John write the first epistle? Why did he write the first chapter of the first epistle? That she might have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Is that kind of a gracious standing in the world? To have fellowship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ? Right there. By whom also we have access, by faith, into this grace wherein we stand. We are the sons of God. And if we believe the gospel message, it gives us access... Where? Where can we go? Straight into the throne room of God. Amen. No high priest in Israel could ever do that. Not like we can. We can go boldly. By faith. Purchased by Jesus Christ. Flowing from our justification. Five little benefits. The Apostle wants to stick in here. In Romans 5, 1-5, through I speak as a fool when I say little benefits. Right. I love these verses. I love five a whole lot more than four. Four is opposing Jewish legalism. Five's just piling on the good stuff. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. Three, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have something given to us that we can lay hold of by faith that causes us to be joyful in hope. Because there is something great coming. It is the glory of God. We have a measure of it now. But our measure of it now is nothing compared to the measure of it that's coming. The Bible says the light affliction that we endure now is not to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. Amen. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. That was number three. Number four. And not only so. Now listen, brethren. I don't know how you read the Bible and I'm not trying to make fun of you. I want to encourage you by these words. I don't know how you read the Bible. But do you read it slowly? I would rather have you read one verse a day than to rip through three chapters and not know what you read. And not only so. Now wait a minute. What in the world are those words there for? Those words are there that the three things I've mentioned to you are just getting me warmed up. And not only so. And not only are those three benefits, I've got some more. These words are fantastic. I believe every word of God. And not only so, just lights my fire. Do you know what's in one and two? Three great blessings. And not only so, that ain't the end. I'm not done. Keep listening. I'm going to go on. I've got a few more things. As Job and Elihu would say, I have yet to speak on behalf of my Maker. And this is it. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. In addition to peace with God, the grace wherein we stand, and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God, we glory. We get excited and exult in triumph over tribulations. This is a child of God that understands His salvation. Right. We glory in tribulations also. Now, how can you glory in tribulations? Well, you're already saved. Who cares what happens to you down here? But Paul's got even more as a reason why you should glory in tribulations. We glory in tribulations also knowing that tribulation worketh patience. And patience worketh experience. And experience worketh hope. Those words are to be understood elliptically. From tribulation you can advance to hope if you will lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ, your eternal justification by faith, and understand that God in His providential government of the world has allowed things to come into your life that are tribulations in order to advance you in Christian character. He wants to perfect you. God can't perfect you or me with prosperity. Prosperity doesn't perfect anyone. It tempts and seduces men. It bewitches them. It's tribulations that advance us. From tribulation, to patience, the cheerful enduring of negative events, to experience, knowing, by having it confirmed to us by repeated events, that God will deliver us by grace inside, and deliver us from external circumstances, so that it results in hope. We can wait on knowing that our deliverance is sure. Paul would say, God has delivered me, and He is delivering me, and I trust He shall Yet, deliver me. All the tenses of delivering because of his experience of God delivering him from tribulation. And hope maketh not ashamed. You're never going to be confounded when you put your hope in God that he is going to supply sufficient grace for you to bear your tribulations. He is going to deliver you from some of your tribulations and he's going to deliver you from all of them by taking you to heaven. There is a cure for cancer. It's called departing this cancerous world and arriving in a cancer-free world. Amen. Number five. Blessing number five. Why will you never be ashamed? Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Jesus died for us in verse 25 of chapter four. He was delivered for our offenses and he was raised again for our justification. But a whole lot of bennies came along. A whole lot of blessings and benefits came along with Him. Peace with God, the grace wherein we stand, rejoicing in hope of eternal glory, being able to glory in tribulations, knowing that God has them all whipped and is using them for our perfection. And then He gives us the Holy Spirit and sheds abroad. We are not talking about a flicker in the corner. If you're walking in the Holy Ghost, if by faith you are believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God is not grieved or quenched in your life, The love of God, God's love for you, is shed abroad in your heart. It is a brilliant light shining into every corner, knowing that God is your Father, so that you are able to cry in agreement with Romans 8 and Galatians 4, Abba, Father. This is a blessing purchased on the cross of Calvary, beyond bare justification. Now justification is pretty good, but the five things here are even better. And they're added blessings that we have now. And then in verses 6 through 11, the apostle starts dealing with some of the facets and aspects of our legal salvation in Christ. And I just, I just gotta share this before I leave the pulpit. Look at verse 11, the first four words. <laughs> That's my God. That's our Father. Do you like, do you like verse 11, the first four words? Now, I thought he had just used them in verse 3. Come on, isn't that enough? Isn't that being a little redundant? I thank God for his holy spirit-inspired redundancy, and not only so, by whom also, also, just wanting to keep adding to his list, we have received the atonement. I am at one with God again, because peace has been secured by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how you read the Bible. I'm a slow reader. All I want to do is latch on to those... Simple little words that declare how much God has done for us through Christ Jesus our Lord.